0: Can you imagine trying to form an opinion of a historical figure without taking into account their most significant achievement? For example, try imagining reading a biography of Winston Churchill that doesn't mention any of his role as Prime Minister during World War II. It's just inconceivable. Surely the way we assess a person, we begin by their most significant achievements. You wouldn't even form an opinion of someone without first trying to gather what they've achieved and done. Well, when Luke wrote the gospel, uh, Luke's gospel that we've been reading over the last several weeks and months, he did it with the intention of clarifying for us the truth about who Jesus really is. He did it with the intention of helping us to be able to form a right opinion of who Jesus is. And having a right opinion, then being able to respond to him in the right way. And it's significant that in Luke's account he he climaxes, he ends his story at the resurrection. Chapter twenty four is all about the risen Jesus. After his death, he rose again. He came back to life. He was resurrected. And he met with the disciples and he spoke with them and taught them. And Luke wants you to see that the resurrection must be factored in to your understanding of who Jesus is. Some people might claim that Jesus was uh, totally fictional or, or at least many of the stories around him are fictional. But ironically, it's the resurrection that is part of the argument against such a view. The resurrection has got to be factored in how and why would the early church have suffered so much persecution if they knew the resurrection to be false. Many people consider Jesus to be a good teacher. They find his words helpful. Love your neighbors. Be kind to those around you. Love God and seek to serve him. But they only allow his words to go about that far. The resurrection shows us that Jesus is more than just a good teacher with a few good moral lessons to teach us. He's something far more than those people would have him to be. And there are others who want to form a biblical view of Jesus. We want to to have a right understanding. We want to know what he was about and what he came to do. Well, Luke presents the resurrection as the climax of Jesus' work. I hope this morning we will see something of how the resurrection feeds into our understanding of who Jesus really is. I want to show you this morning how Luke shapes and forms his account of the resurrection uh, to teach us that the the resurrection is just so fundamental to having a right understanding of Jesus and to relating to him in a proper manner. Well, Luke starts by basically giving us the, the facts of the event. Now, I should just say, in the verses that we've read today, we're not necessarily dealing with a resurrection account. We're not dealing with the risen Jesus here. At at the moment, we're just dealing with the empty tomb. But the risen Jesus does turn up uh, later on in the chapter, and we'll get to that in uh, perhaps next week or or perhaps in future. And I I want you to see first that the way Luke recounts the details, uh, this story about the resurrection and the empty tomb is believable and authentic. The, the, the account is not so naively simplistic like you get some other religious stories to be. Uh, some perhaps related to other religions uh, where you might get a, a story that goes along this, this sort of pattern. Maybe one or two disciples meet the risen Jesus in a cave, alone, separate from others, where, where no one else can see him. And they speak together with the risen Jesus and they come out and they tell people, well, Jesus is not going to appear again. You will just have to take our word for it that we saw him and that we have taken down what he's told us. And here we are passing it on to you. If you want to know the risen Jesus, you've got to come through us. That's not the type of uh, passage we get here. It's not the type of story that we're reading. There are multiple witnesses. And interestingly, Luke doesn't start with the resurrection appearance. He starts with there being no Jesus there. The account isn't so naively simplistic as some of the other religious accounts that we might have heard of that we would dismiss out of hand. They are believable then. And yet, I would say, this account is not not so plastic. It's not so crafted and, and watertight to make it seem unauthentic. Here's what I mean. For example, the first witnesses of the empty tomb are women. Now that might have passed you by unnoticed, but for the, for the culture of the day, a, a woman's testimony was basically worthless. They weren't allowed to testify in court. And so if you were making up a story like this, if you were inventing it to sell it to others... You would not begin with the testimony of a woman. You would not have women being the first people to find the empty tomb. Similarly, um, why uh, why does he not start with the the resurrection, uh, with the appearance of Jesus? Why does he start with the empty tomb? And why does he include so much of of the disbelief, not only of the women, but also of the disciples who follow? Why would there be the various differences between uh, the way Luke records the the resurrection appearances and the way Matthew, Mark and and John do. Those differences aren't irreconcilable, but they are differences. And and these things, I would say, give a flavour of authenticity to the account. It reads like someone recording what they have seen and heard and preserving for us what they see to be the most important details. I think these accounts are believable, and I think they are authentic. And as you read through, already you notice that Luke is including details that help counter some of the arguments that might come up against it. Someone might say, for example, well, there was only an empty tomb because perhaps the women got the wrong tomb. But Luke wants you to know, uh, chapter 23, verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee, they followed Joseph. And they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. He makes a note that these women saw the place where the body was laid. They're not forgetting it. It's only a little more than 24 hours. They were there just before sundown on the Friday. They're back there at first light on the Sunday. They've not forgotten. And there are others who can show them where the tomb really is and and ought to be. Perhaps some might say, well, the body was stolen. Luke includes details that refute that uh, charge as well. Chapter 24, um, verse 12. Peter ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen. What are those strips of linen? Well, they're the strips of linen that Joseph had wrapped the body in before he put it in the tomb. And the strips of linen now are lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. If the body had been stolen, why would the thieves go to the trouble of unwrapping the body and leaving the grave clothes uh, folded neatly in a pile in the tomb? Perhaps some might say, uh, Jesus wasn't really dead. He just swooned on the cross and, and recovered. But if that's the case, how could a man who was unable to carry his own cross up to his execution... And then suffered the, the execution itself. How was he able to regain the strength. Without food or water. In the heat of Israel. Palestine. Over 24, 36 hours. To then be able to roll away the huge stone. From the inside of the tomb. In order to make his escape. The, the facts don't add up. Whatever you make of Jesus. Jesus. As you study his life, Luke presents these these final accounts to hit you with this one last assessment that you have to make. What do you make of the empty tomb? Why was the tomb empty? How did it come to be empty? Why couldn't people who hated the Christians produce a body to show that it was all a lie? Luke presents the data to you in this way because it demands an answer. You see, if Jesus is just a man, then you can treat his life and his words like that of basically any other man you know of. Any other man or woman from history. Other philosophers, other do-gooders, other helps from history. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Descartes, Karl Marx, Confucius, whoever you choose. The way you interact with those men now is that you are able to sift through their teachings, pick out the bits that sound appealing, perhaps the bits that already fit with your understanding of the world, make them little mottos to live by. The teachings don't demand a response from you. They don't command you. They don't change you. Instead, you pick and choose and deal with them as you wish. Because... They were men at best, even the best of men. And so their words can be treated as words of men. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is someone totally different from those other figures of history. He is someone totally different from those other philosophers that you might like to read of. He is wholly different. He is other He is higher. He is altogether in a a different league. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead. It shows us that he's no longer a man. He's no longer just a man. We can no longer treat him as as just a man. He's one who who has broken a barrier. He's broken a barrier that no one else has ever even come close to touching. And he has smashed through it. He's defeated death. Death itself could not keep hold of him. And Luke ends his gospel. He ends his account of Jesus' life and ministry with these facts of the resurrection. Because he wants you to wrestle with the question, who do you really think Jesus is? Is he a good man? Or is he something more? And does your opinion of Jesus take into account... The facts of the resurrection. Does your model, your understanding of who Jesus is. Really do justice to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if it doesn't, do you have good answers. As to why you think the resurrection didn't happen. Luke is presenting you with all the evidence. All the opportunity to see that the resurrection really is true. And if the resurrection is true then that should, it ought to, shape our understanding of who Jesus is. Yet, let's just take a a moment to pause, because we've already said that what we're dealing with here is not necessarily a resurrection. At the minute, we're just dealing with an empty tomb. And I'll be the first to admit that an empty tomb does not necessarily make for a resurrection. Just like one swallow doesn't make for a summer, an empty tomb doesn't make for a risen Lord Jesus. And Luke knows that, I think. When the women uh, come to the other 11 disciples and report what they've found, Luke is happy to report for us that the disciples found their words to be nonsense. Um, Verse 11. They did not believe the the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. What, you're telling us that, that a dead man got up, Before dawn, dressed himself, rolled the stone away from his tomb door and and walked out. Nonsense. Ridiculous. Never heard anything like it in my life, they would have said. For, For the disciples, the empty tomb certainly does not necessarily equal a resurrected Jesus. And I don't think Luke expects the empty tomb alone to be the thing that convinces you. That's why his gospel account doesn't just consist of chapter 24. He's got all the first 23 chapters as well. I think Luke wants you to find the answer to who is Jesus. Not in the resurrected tomb, but in Jesus' words. Look at how Luke details the interaction between the women and the angel. Verse 4. While the women were wondering about these things, suddenly... Two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Now listen to the next bit. What are the angels going to say? He has risen. How do you know? Are they going to point to the folded linen? Are they going to point to the stone that's been rolled away? Are they going to point at the empty tomb? How are the angels going to demonstrate to the women that Jesus has risen? Here's what they do. Verse 6. He is not here. He has risen. Remember. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. Remember his words. Remember what he said, they tell the women. Twice. In Luke's gospel, we have heard Jesus specifically tell us that he is going to rise from the dead. In chapter 9, he said this. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's what Jesus said, chapter 9. Chapter 18, he says a similar thing. He tells his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Two times, specifically, Jesus talks about him rising from the dead. Another, at least three times, he implies it. Uh, he speaks about the, the sign of Jonah. Uh, Jonah, of course, being the one who was in the belly of a fish uh, three days and three nights before being spewed back out onto land again. saying he would have a sign greater than that of Jonah ready to show the people. He spoke to Herod and warned him that he's got uh, today and tomorrow to, to repent and turn from sin because on the third day he would see the kingdom of Jesus come. And even at Jesus' own trial, He was telling the the chief priests, as he was expecting, as he was waiting to be executed, he was telling them, you will yet see the Son of Man exalted to the highest place. He knew there was more to come after the execution that he was about to face. That's at least five incidences in Luke's Gospel that I can count that Jesus shows that he, he knew of his resurrection. You see, the resurrection wasn't dreamed up by the disciples after Jesus died. It wasn't a last gasp to try and make something worthwhile of all that they'd spent the last three years doing together with Jesus. The resurrection was part of Jesus' plan all along. Remember his words, the angels tell the women. Remember how he told you. This is just what he said he was going to do. But here's the question. Where was Jesus getting this plan from? How did he know what was going to happen to to him? You see, it wasn't just Jesus' plan. This had been God's plan from the very beginning. Look at what Jesus has said to the, the women. We're in chapter 24, verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men must be crucified, and on the third day, must be raised again. These things must happen to the Son of Man. Why must they happen? Because this is who the Son of Man has always been intended to be. This is what God's design for the Son of Man was. The last time in Luke's Gospel that Jesus has pointed his disciples specifically to the fulfilment of prophecy around his life and death was in chapter 22. Just before Jesus went out to the garden where he was arrested, Jesus warns his disciples, look, the things that are written about me are about to be fulfilled. Uh, It's written that he was numbered with the transgressors. I'm going to be arrested and taken. It's about to come true. When he said that to his disciples, the verses that he was quoting there, he was numbered with the transgressors, was taken from the book of Isaiah. One of the prophets hundreds of years uh, before Jesus. It was taken from chapter 53, a chapter that perhaps many of you will know quite well. And if you read the words that come just before that quotation that Jesus gives, he was numbered with the transgressors. This is what Isaiah says will happen to God's Messiah. It says. It was the Lord's will to crush him. And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord. Makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. And prolong his days. And the will of the Lord. Will prosper his hand. Listen to this. After the suffering of his soul. He will see. The light of life. And be satisfied. After the suffering of his soul. He will see the light of life. Hundreds of years before Jesus has come. Isaiah the prophet is saying. God's Messiah will suffer. But after his suffering. He will see the light of life. Uh, To what extent is he going to suffer? You read on. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because... He poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. The prophet Isaiah says he's going to be killed. He's going to face death. And yet after his sufferings, he will see the light of life. More than Jesus' miraculous power. More than his grasp of, of the scriptures and ability to teach, more than the events surrounding his birth, more than the injustice of his death, that the single event that Luke portrays has been the decisive piece of evidence to demonstrate to us that Jesus really is the Son of man, God's Messiah is the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead because he was none other than the Son of Man, the promised one of God. And the angels are saying to the women, you ought to have seen this before. You ought to have seen it. You were listening to him. You were watching him teach. You saw the way he served and lived. You saw his miraculous power. You had all the signs available. So why then have you come looking for the one who must have been raised from the dead? Why have you come looking for him among the dead? He must surely be alive, given who he surely is. Remember his words. And to you, listener, remember, perhaps reconsider his words. If Jesus' resurrection has proven him to be the Son of Man, Then there are certain other truths that we know about him by implication. If he is the son of man, which I think his resurrection shows him to be. Then we also know that his death was no mere injustice on the part of the authorities. It wasn't just a slip and a regrettable day. His death was serving a purpose. Isaiah writes about it. His death Was for our sakes. He was crushed. For our iniquity. Our sin. He was bruised. Because of our wrongdoing. We have got peace. Because of the punishment that was laid on him in death. His life has become the guilt offering. So that we can be reconciled to God. If Jesus is this son of man. It means that we are brought into friendship with God. Through Jesus. No more earning our way to heaven. No more striving to, to, to rid ourselves of guilt and shame. God has done it for us. The price has been paid in Jesus Christ. And the resurrection demonstrates that for us because it demonstrates that He is the one that God promised He would be. We know also that in Jesus we therefore have an invitation. An invitation to a life of true satisfaction. Isaiah goes on to, to speak about, uh, well, he goes on to call us to this Messiah that he's going to be sent. Come, he says. Come and, and buy without money and without cost. Buy, buy bread that satisfies and, and wine that, that, that satisfies. Your soul will delight in the richest of fare when you come to this Messiah. No more striving for satisfaction in the the fleeting, empty things of life. You come to Jesus, the Son of Man, and you have promised the goodness of life for all of eternity. And we know, thirdly, that if Jesus is the Son of Man, then one day he's going to return with all power and with all glory. When he returns... He will command the respect of every man, woman, boy and girl on the face of this planet. We will all bow the knee to him. He will have and he will demonstrate all authority in heaven and on earth. And he will come to judge. He will come to judge the living and the dead. People who are alive when he returns and people who have already died. They will be raised to face him in judgment. And because of that truth about the Son of Man, there is no longer any space for a view of Jesus that does not submit to his word. Unless your sins are forgiven in him, then when the Son of Man returns to be the judge, you will have to face him. And you will have to give an account for the wrong that you've done. And you will be condemned. But for those who are in him, who are trusting in him, the Son of Man has paid the penalty for our sin. The Son of Man will come. He must come. Because it's been said about him. God has declared it. God has planned it in advance. And it will happen. Just like the resurrection was inevitable and then happened. So also Jesus' return is inevitable and will happen. Don't forget don't ignore it. Remember his words. See who Luke wants to assure you who Jesus is. The promised one of God. The means of forgiveness. Our saviour.